This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. Better place for you to see. In an octopus's garden. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Better place for you to see. three minutes past nine and you are tuned to 102.73 triple r time for this week's edition of radio marinara we are the program about all things wet and salty my name is bron burton and i'm Cade mills how are you Cade? fantastic a little bit dusty i went out last night and saw cash savage in the last drinks at the croxton um, but i was well behaved because i knew i was coming in but it was an amazing night it was fantastic i I think I needed it. I haven't been out to see live music for a little while, and it's kind of like if you haven't been for a swim at the beach for a while. Just that it does something to your soul. You just feel so much better after experiencing it. It's fantastic. It's true. You become – it's like a grounding experience, I think. Yeah. 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 It had been a while. So, no, I'm I'm ready to go just this morning. We've got a lot to get through too. We do, actually. Yes, we'll get our our, uh, metaphorical skates on. Before we do, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Um, Yesterday was Tim's special birthday edition of Vital Bits, so happy birthday. Tim for yesterday. Big shout out to him. Yep. Happy birthday. Hope the celebrations were long and uh, into the night. As uh, many people have been doing, we're not we're actually not doing a political program today, but if you've just woken up or went out last night or um, you know, weren't aware of what's been going on or haven't seen the front page of the state papers. It was Which a- is me. <laughs> I just asked two minutes ago what actually happened. What happened? So, yes, it was a a landslide victory for the ALP. People are um, celebrating or not celebrating or uh, taking all that news in their stride this morning. 
Well, like a lot of things, a lot of things get said before the election, so we, the follow-up's the most yeah. important thing. It's what you do, not what you say. Exactly. Although we're here talking, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on the program today, shortly we're going to be joined in studio by Fom Sharko from the Port Phillip Eco Centre. And Fom's going to be, she was in um, recently um, and has is joining us again, which is great. And we're going to be talking about the concept of plastic literacy. Yeah, I think I've got a lot to learn on this front. I think we all do, actually. And yeah. I think it's sort of constantly changing, so it'll be good to be brought up to speed. That's right. And particularly within the frame of recyclability. So how recyclable are plastics and what are all the different types of recyclable plastics? Um, what do their categories mean? <coughs> Excuse me. There's not a faulty microphone. It's a faulty voice box. Um, yes. So that'll be really good. Uh, then we, I'm going to hit you up for a dive report, Kate. I can do that. I've had a couple of dives recently. Excellent. Yes, I bet you have. I even have a um, surprise... I guess, what is it, a, a mystery box for Kate when she's in later. It's something that I found when I was out diving off the coast of Torquay about 30 metres and Kate was the first person I thought of who might be able to help us, Great. help me work out what it is. So we're talking about Kate Charlton, Rob. And Sorry, oh, yeah, didn't get there either. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'll, we'll get to her in a second. Yep. So uh, after FOM, we're going to be joined in studio by Gary McPike, who's the um, General Manager, uh, CEO of Barwon Coast Committee of Management. And we are going to be joined by Gary and also on the phone by Dr Angela Murphy from Federation University. They're going to be talking about a study that was commissioned about 12 months ago on beach use on the Barwon Coast. So who uses the beach and why um, and uh, how they're going to use that information to plan ahead and particularly reviewing regulations for dogs on beaches, which is going to happen next year. Oh, wow. Very uh, interesting subject. Yeah. And particularly if you own a dog like I do and have been immensely frustrated over you know the last few consecutive summers. What does that mean? And also being obviously conscious and mindful of protecting um, the creatures that live on beaches, not be, just come there for yeah, a bit of fun. Yeah, and the seasonality of visitors too. Like you obviously have that big influx in summer. Like how different are those people to the people that are there year-round? And also, you know, the different amount of knowledge that someone who goes to the beach all the time has compared to someone who's just down there for a couple of weeks on holidays. Yeah. Yeah, great. So that'll be really good. And then, as we mentioned, Kate Charlton-Robb. Yes, so she's going to come in and give us a quick wrap-up of the Showcasing Marine Science event, which was a couple of weeks ago, where we had six speakers from various sort of institutes from around um, Victoria talking about you know, the science that's happening, basically in our backyard. And she's also going to give a bit of a wrap-up on some of the research that she does with the Marine Mammal Foundation. And she's going to have a mystery object that she's going to have to try and identify live on air for us, which, given that this is not a visual media. We're going to have to do a good job of describing what it is. I can't wait to see it. Ah, I'm dying to see I'm what it is. I'm pretty excited about it myself. Excellent. All right, so that's our program today. Um, I reckon let's have a little look at what the weather might be doing. Yes. I've got the paper in front of me. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? I don't care. I think you never tend to read the weather, do you? I haven't for a while. All right, I'll have a go. Excellent. Yeah, I'll keep this streak going. So if you haven't looked out the window today, it's actually quite fine at the moment. Um, we're heading for a maximum of 18 degrees with light winds um, and about one to five millimetres of rain if it does come along. Tomorrow we're getting a bit better, so we're heading towards 21 degrees with a low of 12. Tuesday is 26, which is looking like the peak of the days, which is great because that's my day off work, so I'll make the most of that. Uh, Wednesday we've got a high of 18 I've um, got a faulty microphone too. <coughs> Thursday, a top of 21, Friday 22 and Saturday 22 with sort of minimal chance of rain over all those days. Or minimal rain, but a chance of rain over all those days. 
we have the tide. So at Point Lonsdale Sunday, so low tide was at 7.51 this morning. So we had a high tide at 2 o'clock this afternoon. And we currently have sort of southwest winds increasing a little bit, so sort of light on shore. So any of those dive sites around Mornington Peninsula would be nice and protected from a lot of that. So hopefully people are out there, and I know a lot of people are out there doing the fish count. Um, shout out to you, and I know AJ from Dive to You is running a wild families fish count this morning at 10 o'clock. So the idea is to get families and kids to get in the water together. It's sort of... Um, I guess as families struggle to find things to do together and jumping and going for snorkels an awesome thing to be able to share with your kids. So they're down there today kicking off at 10 o'clock at Ripe Pier. Excellent. Yep, and that's the weather. Get down there. I reckon we might go straight to a track. What do you reckon? Bring it on. And get FOM in. Uh, so big shout out to Adam for this one. And uh, this is a local outfit. Their name is Moogie. M-O-O-G-Y and uh, they've got a single which they released earlier this year I understand that there is an album coming reasonably soon so I hope uh, you enjoy this one Tim this one is for you for your birthday this is Chocolat It is quarter past nine. You are listening to 3RRR Radio Marinara. It's the name of this program and we're welcoming into studio from Sharko from Port Phillip Eco Centre. Good morning. Are you wearing that hat today? My hat? Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of a hat you don't really take off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, excellent. So welcome back. It's great to have you here. And we're talking about um, plastic literacy and what that is. Yeah. So um, I have noticed that a lot of people are really, really confused about several things about plastic, and especially because plastic pollution is now a thing that's all over the news all the time, every day. Um, I thought it would be time for people to really learn a little bit more about what they're dealing with when they are using plastic and disposing of plastic, because it is in our lives. We can't do you know much about that right now. Um, but it would be really good if people understand more about what they're dealing with and what the consequences are of the plastic that they are using, or not using depending on what they choose great all right so we mentioned at the start of the program um the recyclability of plastics has been a point of contention and confusion for a lot of people and it's something that's changed a lot uh, largely i think driven by the recycling industry yeah. you see all those numbers that are on the bottom of a lot of plastics and um what do they mean and at one point number five was recyclable and then it wasn't recyclable and um and even at my work the the you know the different grades of bins for where you put your stuff and at one point coffee cups could go in the recyclables and then it couldn't and now it's yeah. tea bags could go in and now they can't so it, yeah. it's yeah great to have you here to, to go through all of that stuff yeah well um i did take it a step back from the recyclability um, because I think it would be really interesting for people to hear about um, a little bit about the uh, clearing up some of the confusion about the terms that are being used with plastic. So not just the recyclability, but things like uh, degradable plastic, oxo-degradable plastic, biodegradable plastic and compostable plastic. Like, What are the differences? Be because people get really confused and the crappy thing is there is not really a rule that says when you can use 
which term and what exactly it means, right? So there's no standard. No, there's no those, standard. That's more a marketing term. That's than right. Anything else. That's yeah. right. So, um, for example, if you want to label uh, a product that you produce as organic in Australia, there's a lot of rules about that. You can't just call something organic unless you, um, you know, have a lot of uh, different boxes ticked, basically, of you know specific chemicals you can't use or pesticides or fertilizers, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of rules around that. Um, with plastic and especially, um, uh, in, yeah, in the plastic industry, it's not that it's not that clear. Um, so people get really confused because <laughs> I was at um, I was at the markets uh, the other day and I saw somebody you know buying some meat from the butcher and they got a, a plastic bag and it has this uh, it has like a slogan on it that says degradable bag looking after the environment mm. and that just made my blood boil I can tell you um, it's interesting isn't it and that's something that has existed particularly in in uh, eco labeling for in so many different areas and for so long it's something that you know it's never for a start it's a great marketing tool but in terms of getting the clarity on that even like you'll remember this too Cade with fish names this was a really big issue a few years ago because you'd get one species of fish in the markets and five different names applied to it yeah. so as a consumer you don't really know unless you unless you're consciously looking all this stuff up for yourself you don't really know what you're looking at particularly when it's a fillet um, and I know I'm speaking to vegetarians and vegans both in <laughs> studio and out there, but but it's it's one of those things that um, it's not like a a health related thing, right? The heart smart thing with the tick, it's pretty straightforward. You've got the medical. I'm, I'm sure there are debates uh, out there amongst the medical profession, but generally it, it seems to have been something that they've it, they've got their act together on. But it's not something that seems to have, uh, have has extended into the into eco. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to dispel a few myths. Um, so. Generally, plastic is made up of polymers, right? So you've got petroleum-based plastics and you've got bioplastics. Now, petroleum-based plastics obviously are made out of oil and they cannot be broken down by microorganisms. Biodegradable plastics can be broken down by microorganisms because they are made of other stuff. They are made of um, starch that could come from potatoes or corn or wheat or something like that. And um, the polymers in uh, degradable and oxo-degradable bags are basically those plastics that will last forever. So they make these really long polymer molecules, which is basically super long chains of carbon. Um, so if you have like a normal molecules like a macaroni, then a polymer would be a spaghetti, right? right? So all of the macaronis linked together. Um, and when <laughs> when you get a plastic bag that says degradable plastic bag, it sounds really great, but it actually isn't because the only thing that it does is break down into smaller pieces quicker. Mm. So it doesn't mean that it's ever going to be um, converted into you know, organic molecules that can then be taken up by the food chain and support other life. It's not like that. It's just going to stay plastic forever, just in smaller pieces. So basically, it gets to being a microplastic quicker. And that's, that's a, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's for people, for, so for people out there who are well-meaning and are looking at this thinking, right, I want to do something good for the environment, having something being labelled as biodegradable means it will break down Quicker. It will, but there is a big but. There's so, always a yeah, but. Oh, yes. There, so whether you have compostable, home compostable, biodegradable, oxo-degradable uh, or landfill biodegradable bags, it all depends on how they are disposed of. Right. Right? So I can say straight off the bat, there is no type of plastic that will degrade 
properly into organic molecules in the marine environment okay. or in the environment in general, right? So it really all depends on how you dispose of it. So degradable and oxodegradable means that it has to go to landfill, really. Uh, that's the only way. Or you incinerate it, but that obviously comes with its own cost as well. So there you can't you know, just say like, oh, it's not so bad if I accidentally lose that in the environment. That's bad because it's petroleum-based. But then with biodegradable... In biodegradable, you have compostable and home compostable. But the tricky thing is, if you have a compostable biodegradable plastic bag, it really only composts in a special compost facility with, uh, you know, temperatures of 60 degrees Celsius or more and a constant level with constant oxygen, constant UV and constant moisture. Now, nobody knows where these compost facilities are. (laughs) So are these the conditions that they actually test... The bags that to be able to put that label on yes exactly and they're not they're not lying that's the thing they are biodegradable just not in your necessarily in your home compost right so you have to send them to this factory that nobody knows the address of uh, to be actually biodegraded properly um, and that's that's the tricky bit and so far i have only i mean if you have a bio uh, a biodegradable coffee cup are you going to separate it in your waste and then mail it to... I mean, how are we going to get this stuff to this compost facility if nobody knows where it is, right? Well, there's a business opportunity for you. Well, Start this yeah. Well, actually, facility. I spoke to someone from the borough of Queenscliff the other week, and uh, she's working with uh, uh, the Queenscliff... Queenscliff Music Festival people who are really on, on track to going fully zero waste. It's really mm. fantastic. And apparently they are working with a, a contractor who have started setting up a compost facility as part of their business for these kind of biocups and things like that. Um, so there is there is an opportunity, as you say. <laughs> we'll see who, who snatches it up. But So when it comes to plastics, and basically the message I'm getting is steer clear. Are there any yeah. out there that... You know, you can put in your home compost and they will break down. And, you know, you were saying before, like using various starches and things like that. So So are they becoming... All the biodegradable bags are made of a type of starch and they will they will break down under the right circumstances, right? Um, if you look at home compostable bags, those are the kind of plastic bags that people can put in their little compost bin to line it and then you put it out in your compost. Um, but again, you can't really use that for stuff that goes to landfill because if you put compostable bags into landfill, it's not going to break down because there's no oxygen. It's anaerobic, right? So the so whatever bacteria there are there work under oxygen poor conditions, and they will actually produce methane mm. Mm. when they have to break down those bags, which is 21 times worse than carbon dioxide, right? So that's something that you want to prevent. So if you have home compostable bags, you should really only compost it at home with food scraps and not not in landfill. Or not use a bag at all. Or not use a bag at all like I do. I just put it in my compost bin and then, you know, chuck it in the worm farm and bring that, it back and wash it. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Or put some, maybe put some soil in to, because, you know, they can get pretty manky yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you they do. get that kind of liquid that forms it's a kind of leachate i suppose yeah. that forms at the bottom of your compost bin but i just usually put a couple of scoops of earth in it and mix it around yeah and or you could use some lime or something like yeah, that yeah right yeah okay. so there's one other interesting um plastic type that um they've invented in 2010 and it's called landfill biodegradable and that's very interesting because those really long polymer chains the reason why they're not being broken down by microorganisms is because microorganisms don't recognize it as food. 
But what landfill biodegradable bags do is it is, a, it is a normal plastic, but it has been modified to have these little organic molecules that, that act as a food source for microbes that specifically oh, live in landfill. Right. So it's like a weakness. Yeah, a it is. But it, it kind of attracts, attracts yeah. those microbes. And yeah. so they'll start eating those food particles and the enzymes that they then secrete are actually breaking down those polymers oh, into, cool. into edible chunks right however again you can only use that in <laughs> landfill right? right because they need to they have these specific microbes they use for that that need to work under very poor oxygen conditions so anaerobic so again if you lose it in the marine environment it's not gonna it's not gonna break down so just the everyday bag that you say people will get from a supermarket that they put in their fruit and veg in they don't tend to have any labels on them. You don't tend to know what uh, category it fits into. Well, if but it where, doesn't have do that, that? Yeah. it's usually a PET. Like it's usually, it will be a, uh, a, a petrochemical-based, a petroleum-based plastic bag. So they tend to steer clear of labeling if they're a petrochemical Yeah, because, bag, I mean, that's your, kind of your run-of-the-mill one, right? It's the one that is being produced most. It's the cheapest one to produce, yeah. And the obvious answer to all of this too, I mean, we, we're starting to take some real leaps and strides as far as avoiding the big plastic bags at the, the checkout, yeah. the next step is to avoid the smaller plastic bags for fruit and veggies. And I've seen some really great, as we're heading up to that gift-giving time of the year, seen some really great packs of bags that can be used for fruit and veggies because, of course, fruit and veggies are weighed. So I think that's one thing that puts people off thinking, well, I don't want to pay the extra weight of whatever it is, like 50 grams of a, <laughs> of a cloth bag, but they're making them out of really super light fabric now. Um, so that's obviously the next step in all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the in, innovation, you can't stop innovation, right? And and I think necessity is the mother of innovation more often than not. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see alternatives starting to pop up all over the place. And, you know, one of these landfill biodegradable bags is, is a start in that where we're using, you know, biochemical processes and biochemical sciences to, um, yeah, just to, to, to change that landscape. But, you know, you still need to dispose of it in, in your landfill or in your compost and you, can't, you still can't lose it in the environment. Someone is uh, still to find out, you know, about a plastic bag that can degrade into organic molecules if it gets out into the ocean. That's probably a good note to finish up on, unless there's anything else in your notes that we haven't covered from. Oh, no, no. I think I think this will be a, a good start. And if people uh, have more questions, they can always send me an email. And you're absolutely right. It's a good start and it's something that we can build from. And I was talking to somebody yesterday about uh, – well, no, it was – anyway, it doesn't matter when it was. But we are talking about straws and how that's gone gangbusters in no time. It's gone from one of those things that have, has gone from, oh, yeah, you know, paper could be the alternative to – in my area anyway, a widespread sweep where cafes have almost, you know, domino style elected to give up their plastic straws and are going with paper ones. And so um, I was speaking with someone the other day who works in a cafe and was abused by someone because uh, the the customer wasn't supplied with a plastic straw in their paper cup. Mm. And, um, And it's one of those things, I think. Well, it's really exciting to see how that is now becoming a social norm. Yes. That you're not using plastic so much and that is really what we want because you can put plastic bag bands on and all that sort of stuff but if people don't wise up and help that process along by choosing to reduce their plastic use right that is really where we want to go 
Peer pressure, peer pressure can be a great thing. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. It's yeah. a very big driver of behavior change. That's right. right. Like changing the social norm. That's right. And ultimately cultural shift. Thanks, Fom. Look forward to the next time already. Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Been speaking with Fom Sharko. You're a special one, Kate. Oh, well, thank you, Bron. <laughs> You're a special one, Fom. We've invited you to stay in to talk about the Great Victorian Fish Count because you've both been so actively involved. Yes, actually, I'll be doing it in about two weeks' time with Fom and the Yay. crew down at the Eco Centre. Um, it's becoming a bit of a yearly tradition and it's a great it excuse is, for me it? to get out of the office and get down to Alwood. So to get to those this spots... This time, that- you've got to get in the water with us, though. Bring your wetsuit. Oh, yeah, I'll be in. I'll be in. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's, I think, part of the fish count is that people will go to their usual dive sites but also just sort of explore a little bit more and get out to those spots they don't usually go to. And for a lot of people, it's a way to kick off the dive season. Their gear might have, you know, been sitting in the shed for a little while, getting a little bit... Getting dry and a little bit tighter, it tends to, and I believe yeah. that's just because it's a bit drier. It's oh, not, yes. Yeah, that's all <laughs> it is. Nothing to do with winter yeah. at all. But a lot of people use it to get themselves back in, out in the water, and we actually had quite a few groups out yesterday, and the forecast was looking horrible, and we had all that rain during the week. But from the photos I've seen, they've, you know, they've, the visibility has been quite nice. Below, I think probably a lot of that fresh water sits on top, and the um, dive sites closer to the heads tend to be a little bit clearer. So there's been um, quite a few groups sort of out and about, and even down the coast they were able to sneak in when the swell was down um, earlier in the week so I do some down at Warnable Way I know it's been fantastic and I had the pleasure of going into the ABC is it News Breakfast um, show on Tuesday or Wednesday morning with Nicole so Nicole's now running the fish count and she was invited in to do the News Breakfast on tally and they're nowhere near as professional as us in Radio (laughs) Marinara that's all I can say but they were quite receptive to it they were questioning because the theme this year is the friendly faces of the fish count and the friendly face that we're using is the Port Jackson shark and I think a lot of people don't hear the Port Jackson bit. They just hear shark. And, mm. you know, they brought up the idea of it being, isn't it worrying that you've got people counting sharks? And it was a good opportunity to discuss that, you know, not all sharks, there's only like a handful of sharks that are making the headlines where most of them are pretty cute and people get quite excited by seeing them. Well, they're just swimming around doing their thing, aren't they? Well, that's it. And actually, I've seen the, was it the varied carpet shark, the epaulette shark, even oh, out yeah. at um, Point Ormond. Yes. I think it was two years ago down there and... Um, Oh, what's the name of the young guy from the Eco Centre? Oh, Gio Fitzpatrick. Yeah, who yeah. just manages to find rare and endangered species wherever oh, he goes. Gio He's is ridiculous. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to go out on a walk with him, you will always see the stuff that hasn't been seen in like a hundred years. You know, <laughs> he just attracts yeah, species. It's he, amazing. He took a photo of a spider when he was sitting down on the beach and it hadn't been recorded for a hundred years or something. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So that wow. sort of stuff just seems to happen to him. Actually, we we should get him in yeah, one day. You can, we'll, you can bring him in for us, Fom. It would be great. I'll bring him but, in. It's yeah. really fun to uh, to talk with him. He knows a lot. Yeah. That's awesome. It, How long does the fish count go for? It wraps up on the 17th of December. So it's sort of it's running during the week and every weekend. If you want to find a group that's doing it, just jump on – or just type in Great Victorian Fish Count and there's – we list it by each date so people can sort of pick the date that they're available and then find a local group. A lot of the marine care groups, I think Ricketts Point were out on Saturday. Jawbone still have theirs at Williamstown sort of coming up. And then any of the dive stores are generally – happy for you to tag along and jump in the water with them and quite a few of them just do it on snorkel too so if you're not a diver you can get in and have a look around and you take a slate with you and it's kind of like a treasure hunt you, yeah you're out there looking trying to find these species and get a bit of an idea of what's out there and also i think once you start looking a little bit harder you see a lot more let's say with a sea slug census um 
people doing that start sending in photos of amphipods and isopods and all these little worms and critters that they'd never seen before. It's just because they're stopping to take the time to look for these tiny things that they're finding it. Yeah. Which actually I should bring an update on the sea slug census at some stage too. We saw 75 species in four days. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. One dive pair saw 50 species. Oh, my God. Yeah. Shout out to Chris and Rebecca. They did an amazing How job. How long were they in there? Oh, I have a feeling they just <laughs> stayed there. They just <laughs> had a compressor on top of the beer and just away they went. Yeah, 50 species in – and probably over the weekend. They probably didn't dive the Friday or the Monday. So it's um, really the wow. equivalent of um, of twitches, isn't it? Because when we – Yeah, it's, it's the closest it's becoming, we have to it. it. It's yeah. becoming a real cultural like, underwater equivalent of bird watching. It is. And, the, I mean, the most exciting thing is we're finding new species. Yeah. We, the first census I had a um, species that Bob Byrne, who's the Victorian expert, had never seen before and that's been um, – double checked we sort of took a few extra photos in and now he needs a specimen and same with this one yeah we've found another species this time too Brilliant. so basically get out in the water count some fish look for sea slugs get amongst it get wet yeah <laughs> thanks Kate. thanks Pleasure. tom we're going to play some music now it's 9 35 25 to 10 and when we return from uh, our little musical interlude we're going to be joined in studio by gary mcpike he is the if you've just tuned in he's the ceo of the barwon coast committee of management and on the phone by by Dr Angela Murphy from Federation University talking about beach use on the Barwon Coast. Uh, this track is from uh, Laura Jean, uh, her 2018 release album, Devotion. I hope you enjoy it. It is the title track. Indeed, Triple R is where you are and it's 20 minutes to 10. Now, 12 months ago, the Barwon Coast Committee of Management launched the Share Our Shores program, a program set up to promote the respect, responsibilities and rights that are important in minimising conflict between different beach users. As part of the program, Federation University Australia was engaged to undertake a social research project that focused on community views and experiences in relation to various management issues. The final report of the study is called Barwon Coast Coastal Management and Beach Usage Research Report. To speak about it and how the data will be used, we'll be very, we are very pleased to first up welcome in studio General Manager of Barwon Coast, Gary McPike. Good morning, Gary. Morning, Bron. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, it's great to have you here. And uh, on the phone, we are also joined by researcher Dr Angela Murphy from Federation University. Good morning, Angela. Hi, Bron. How are you? Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity on our part two. Oh, it's great to have you both in studio. Um, first up, Gary, I thought I might just ask you about Bowen Coast uh, in terms of the whereabouts. Um, mm. we all, we're all sort of generally familiar with where it's at, but specifically which part of the coast are we talking about here? How much of your coastline does your committee of management cover? Yeah. Thanks, Bron. Yeah, so Bowen Coast is appointed by state government and we manage 13 kilometres of coastal crown land reserves from the sort of east end of Colondina Ocean Grove uh, Beach right through to the west end past 13th Beach down near Black Rocks. So 13 k's of coastlines, generally the, some of the busiest beaches on the outside coast. I was going to say... Around Ocean Grove, Bowen Heads. Yeah, very popular stretch of coastline. Um, so what's the specific role of your committee of management? We've spoken about committee... Well, have mm. had people on representing committees of management. What does your group do? So we manage the coastal and public reserves along the coast there. And it's probably something a lot of people don't really understand. If you go to beaches like Torquay, Anglesey, uh, Lawn Apollo Bay, where I managed for 12 and a half years, most of your public open 
spaces, the beaches, the barbecues, the playgrounds, the toilets are managed by committees of management under uh, a pretty simple user pays principle uh, business model. Uh, we generally manage caravan parks, campus fund everything. So there's very little money, recurrent funding, uh, that goes in from state or federal taxes or local government taxes. It's so basically it's a, paid by the campus. So it's a huge job. It's a big job. Yeah, yeah. and it, a really it, important one as well. We think so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these, this model allows us to develop expertise in, around all the issues associated with most managing coastal crown land. And so how does it differ in your role as opposed to, um, like, a state government management role that either Parks Victoria or or the Department of uh, and Land... Uh, what are Environment, Land, Water yes. and Planning. We're uh, very <laughs> similar, identical. We're just okay. another model of, of how Crown land is managed on behalf of the Victorian public. Okay. So let's turn our attentions to the study now. Can we take a few moments to recap the background to this study? Yeah, how did, sure. How did it all come about? Look, when I came to the job uh, at uh, Bowen Coast... One of the big issues that I brought over from Apollo Bay was that dogs on beaches were a, a real concern. And as it turns out, they're, they're the major threat to public amenity. They're the thing we get the most complaints about. Um, we got all our stakeholders together, which was PV, uh, Vic Pol, the local, local government, City of Greater Geelong, uh, Cherish Pets, an organisation that represents pet owners, uh, vets, and we started working through the issues. And it was clear that it wasn't only dogs, but it's kids in the dunes, it's, it's interfering with wildlife, where the port ma manages as well, so it's speeding on the river. We packaged all those together and, and thought, we've got to do something about this and raise awareness of it and try and modify people's behaviour, which is really the problem we had. Uh, that's where we developed Share Our Shores. Then we realised we really don't have an idea of what our community knows about this or what they think about it. And uh, then we got in, met with Angela Murphy and engaged Fed Uni and uh, Angela's team to do some survey work on what the community's really thinking. Angela, I'll ask you a question in a sec. I just wanted to pick up one point, and it's it's just sure. really interesting, um, Gary. You said you've come from Apollo Bay to mm. Barwon Coast. Yep. And in terms of beach usage and, and the general community views, did, have you found a difference between the communities and how they use their beaches? Uh, nuanced differences? No. People do the same things on our beaches. They recreate. It's where we go. It's why we come and we live by the coast. I guess We the like to walk our dogs there, surf, fish walk and all the rest That's of it. That's it. I guess mm. the key difference with Bowen Coast is that it's accessible from Melbourne, mm. whereas Apollo Bay it's still it's accessible but it's yeah. a bit more commitment to get three, you know, three hours That's down right. to Apollo yeah. Bay. Yeah. And with all the development on the Ballerine um, and the west of the city, you know, the, the numbers are just huge. It's increasing so you'll get quite significantly. far more pulse activity particularly. I suppose you still get pulse activity over the summer down at Apollo Bay but oh, from, yeah. from um, different sort of long weekends and things like that. No, it's the same at Apollo it's Bay but it's a little more dedicated travel who goes to the oh, bay. absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Um, Angela, I just wanted to ask you about the study. So how did you go about um, approaching this? How did you go about yes. conducting it? Yeah, look, one of the things that um, I pick up on what Gary said, it was uh, initially we were approached to do it as a survey, but because the issues that they wanted to know about were really social research issues, it wasn't enough to do that. So we developed both a quantitative and qualitative survey and then we opened up um, the possibility for people to speak to us and also to send us telephone and email feedback and, um, and we did site visits. So we tried to capture as much as we could about what people thought with face-to-face -face contact. Um, we, weren't, we actually were blown away 
away and weren't able to actually speak to everyone, although everyone was given the opportunity if they couldn't do face-to-face to put in written submissions. And we ended up with um, 1,842 people participating and giving us feedback, which for a, um, a social research project is just enormous. <laughs> And do you think part of the reason for that is because of the subject matter? People are so emotive and invested and passionate about, about you know, the beach and particularly for people who live by the coast. That's, that's why they live by the coast, because they love it so much. Is, is that the reason why you had so many people sort of clamouring to be part of the study? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think that was, if I had to identify what the key finding, and there were lots of findings, there's a report I know that Barwon have on their website with an exec summary, people can capture all of it. You know, you can't capture it in a few minutes. But if I had to say what was the most definitive thing that came out of it was... The issues people raised were really the tangible things they could grasp onto. So we're concerned about litter, we're concerned about dogs. They picked tangibles, but the underlying issue was their sense of identity. They had an incredibly strong sense of space and place and identity, and that was what they wanted to retain most of all, and that's what drove it. They wanted to say, look, these are... We were really lucky in that by them being so honest, we were able to actually map to map the features that they see are critical to their identity and their community and say, well, these are the things that if we keep them um, in place will actually enable us to continue to have the things that we love and value so much. Gary, how is Bowen Coast planning on using these data? How are you going to put it to use? So we've been going through and getting an understanding of it and um, as Angela said, you know, it's, we've had a huge response to this. It's uh, especially around the dog side of things. It's quite emotive. Mm-hmm. People are quite passionate, both for and against. Uh, we've started reviewing those. We're going to relook at our regulations uh, and the things that we need to do. Signage, for example, was one thing that came up and we know that we've got to do work on our signage to make it easier for people to understand their obligations, their rights and their responsibilities. Uh, in the new year, we'll start engaging back with the community going, this is what's come out of the, the study. This is how we think we should change our regulations in response to that. What do you think? So um, specifically focusing on those laws around dogs on beaches in summer, I was mentioning that earlier. Mm. Um, I'm, I confess to being a highly, at times, frustrated but also very responsible and respectful beach user. And in terms of trying to plan a family holiday with the dog at the beach, it's not just something that's particular for Victoria coastline right up through New South Wales. Dogs are sort of banned on beaches through the whole summer period. The problem then, of course, is that if you have a dog, what does that mean for you in trying to plan a holiday? Is that something that will be part of the review as well? Yeah, certainly we're mindful of that. That said, though, on our beaches, only 16% uh, at the peak of summer of our beaches, uh, dogs are not allowed. So they've still got opportunities. There is a lot of uh, coastline that people can take their dogs to. Ideally, you don't want people with dogs in the really busy parts of the beach where people are, you know, swimming between the flags and that sort of thing. Yep. You've got peak populations. Angela? And can I, can I just add to that, if I've got a second, to say that while um, uh, dogs off-leash off was the key issue raised by both dog owners and non-dog owners, and people had different perspectives about how that impacted on their recreation, um, there were, the notion dogs on beaches, regardless of ownership, was that they're really valued and they're actually, actually part of defining the community um, and what is valued within that community. It was more about managing the process so it can everything can be shared you know uh equally and and comfortably 
Um, Angela, what are the next steps for this study? I understand you've got a, um, a co-funded PhD starting next year. Yeah, we have. We were really, um, there was so much interest. It started off as a small research study and it's, it, there was so much interest and so many issues across, as I said, signage and um, beach use and identity and all of those things that um, we actually managed to get a co-funded scholarship. So our Vice-Chancellor agreed to put up half the cost to fund a PhD and our Barwon Committee of Management has come in and, as partners and they're funding the other half. So we've got someone in February starting on a three-year research project examining those issues and looking at you know models that might work to help things come together and address the issues that were raised while retaining that community identity. Fantastic I think that's a perfect note to leave on and uh, we'll catch up with you early in uh, next year early in 2019 um, to to uh, speak with the the lucky student who's going to do possibly the best research project for a PhD I've ever heard of. Um, yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> yeah so we'll catch up with you again then. Um, Gary where can people go for more information and particularly have a look at this report if it interests them? Yeah, to bowandcoast.com.au. All right, fantastic. On our website's got everything. Angela, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. And, and um, have a lovely Sunday. Thank you. You too, and look forward to catching up with you next <laughs> year. Great. And, and Gary, thank you so much for coming all the way from Bowen Coast. That's okay. Pleasure, Bron. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up with you again next year as well. Thanks See for your time. You, Gary. It's great. See you, Angela. <laughs> See where Bye. this goes. Bye. <laughs> 9.52, came up to 9.53 and you are listening to Radio Mariner here. Mariner. Marinara. Oh. <laughs> you can tell we're running a little behind time. Welcome, Kate Charlton-Rob. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to have you back in again. Great to be back. When we had you in last, we were promoting the um, showcasing Victoria's marine brilliance. That's what I kind of think of it as. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all the great marine science that goes on in Victoria. And how did the evening go? Yeah, it was a great evening. We had uh, a really amazing turnout from a whole bunch of different uh, community members from from really interested sort of uh, young people all the way through to, um, you know, all generations in the community. It was great, great questions. Uh, the night was amazing with a whole um, array of different uh, aspects with marine sciences. So, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, I think some of the best feedback I had a few conversations with people after and they were saying where are all the philanthropists that should be here helping our scientists do this work because so much of the work that was presented on the night is applied like we're just starting to learn about I guess our marine assets so the ocean mapping stuff presented by Daniel um, Eric Connor Danu from Deakin University was quite impressive in but he's only done 40% of the coast. There's still 60% that we don't know about. So there's all this stuff that needs to keep on going, even the work that Kate's doing around finding out, you know, basically the population of the dolphins that we have in the bay and in Gippsland Lakes and how do we go about managing such small populations. If we didn't know they were so small, we wouldn't ha have be able to answer these questions. And just everything, the shellfish reef, reef restoration, and that was something that sort of surprised me. I never really thought about it like that. And they were mm. just saying, like, there's obviously a need for this research um, and as Kate Kate probably well, well know there's a lot of competition for money to do this. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a very applied area and, and it does have a lot of the research that is being done is for management and conservation. It's not research for research's sake. It's actually out there trying to, um, you know, raise awareness and make, as we say at the foundation, make a better tomorrow with what we're finding out. Yeah, so that was it was good feedback on that front and it was good to see some young kids in the audience as well. Um, I know we were talking a couple of years ago, Graham Hayes gave a talk on turtles and he had like a little fan there. So they're starting to 
Maybe we've got marine scientist groupies, perhaps. Did your turtle, <laughs> did your turtle fan come back? Uh, I don't know. We had sure. there's yeah. a few a few young ones in the audience, yeah. and um, you know, really supportive parents, obviously, which is great to see too. You know, really um, being able to foster that, even regardless of how young they are, to go. You know, my kids are really passionate about this, and and doing what they can to really support and foster that is really great to see. And it's great seeing kids shoot up their hands yeah ask some fantastic questions in forums like that too yeah no there were some good questions from uh, across the board some uh, yeah no it was it was a really great night and it's always it's always good to bring together um the different aspects of marine science uh, and really showcase all the different things that are going on um across the state uh, really great. good way to do it and there'll be another one next year won't there? yeah definitely an annual one yeah yeah highly recommend if you missed out on this one to go along next year which i will be trying to do It'd be good to see you there, Bron. Excellent. And now, wanted Kate was going to talk about with summer sort of on the way, and we're talking about people dusting the cobwebs off their wetsuits, and a lot of people are probably dragging their boats out of their shed as well, and giving a bit of a wash and making sure it starts. And you've recently been doing some research on sort of interactions of boats and is it dolphins and seals, or just with dolphins? Yeah, with marine mammals across the yep. board. And so yeah, there's with the summer coming up, we do see uh, a lot more people venturing out on on the water in their boats and kayaks and stand up paddleboards and jet skis and. And, uh, you know, we also, this time of year, we're seeing more and more of our calves. So in Port Phillip Bay in particular, this is our calving season. So there's been uh, a number of reports of really small animals. We were out the other day uh, straight out from Ricketts Point, actually, and we had, um, you know, this tiny little brand new, we call them newbies. <laughs> so you can still see the hairs on their rostrum and they have the fetal Aww. folds, are tiny little squishy things. Um, but the how, issue, how big are they? Oh, they come out at just less than a metre. So, right. Yeah, they're really small um, and they're a little bit unco. They, uh, you know, flop themselves out of the water. But the issue is that they do spend more time at the surface um, and they're not as skilled at, at getting away from, from vessels. So we do have right. a, a few animals in, in our population that actually have the prop marks on them where they've, they've had boat strike. Um, so there are regulations in place that are designed to protect uh, the dolphins and whales and seals um, for from the state government. So, you know, it's a really important time to remind people whether you're on a powered or an unpowered vessel. So an unpowered vessel is a kayak and a stand-up paddleboard. A lot of people think, oh, they can still, you know, paddle over and approach, but they're actually still considered a vessel. And so it's not approaching dolphins within 100 metres. Um, and that really gives them the choice to be able to interact with you. Mm. Um, and then if they do come over and check you out, which and a lot of times they do, and they eyeball you and you get this amazing connection uh, with these fantastic animals, but it's on their choice. Um, so we always say at that point, if they do come over, drop your speed back, obviously no sharp changes, and just really enjoy that interaction, but don't force it. So the research we've been doing actually had a look at um, the level of compliance to vessels uh, around uh, the Burrinan dolphins or the endangered Burrinan dolphin and in particular down in Gippsland Lakes over the summer. And um, it was quite surprising that we had 77% um, of all of our sightings involved vessels um, within 400 metres. And um, quite surprisingly, four point, about four and a half um, violations per hour of sightings oh. we found. So that's a lot of that's a lot of violations to regulations. And sometimes it's about the fact that they don't know vessels don't know um, and not educated about the fact that they can't just directly approach so these dolphins. Is that what they say, or is that yeah. the reality? Um, it's I know it's a very hard question to answer, but yeah. I, I do question. 
if you've got a boat license, surely part of that well maybe it's not but i would have thought part of that license would be being aware of regulations there, there it is brought up in the regulations and they do actually have to in the book but we're actually trying to push for the fact that it needs to be a mandatory test and then that takes away we've developed booklets and signage that can be you know really easily accessible at boat ramps so that it takes away that well i just didn't know so it's really just being aware of that we're really lucky to have these animals out in the wild um, but respect the choice that they have and don't approach within that one 100 metres and a jet ski in particular is 300 metres um, so really just being aware of those regulations this summer is, is really crucial. So we've got a lot of people out there who will have heard that right now so uh, it's always that opportunity to keep that information and spread it and let people know about it too. Unfortunately Absolutely. we're running out of time aren't we? Yes we but are. I do have the mystery oh, object yes. that oh, I found at 30 metres <laughs> at Torquay when I was out diving actually with fisheries and with a mate Brent Lumpfish Womersley who's a subscriber to the show and there we oh, go. I found this. So that is a vertebrae. Yes. Uh, so it has. Can you paint the, a picture? The processes. Uh, paint a picture. So it has the core, uh, the core of the vertebrae, and then you have the where the the cord comes down in the centre. So it has three processes: um, two out to the side and one going uh, vertically. So two horizontal and one vertical. It's about thirty centimetres long, 25, yeah. 30 centimetres long. And the and it forms a bit of an L shape uh, from there on either side of the central process, and that basically is where the back strap of the this is a vertebrae of, of this would be it's quite big so okay. it would be of a cetacean yep ah oh, so yeah about about 30 centimeters so yeah really cool awesome. fantastic thank you kate very quick thank you to our guest today kate charlton rob um uh, at dr angela murphy gary mcpike as well and from charco uh, thank you kate thank you Brian. thank you kent very much for panel beating for us today and uh thank you um to all of you for listening on our next week's program. Ants will be in along with Dr. Beach and possibly Terry Allen. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Have yourself a wonderful couple of weeks. Catch you then. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.